Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Claire Monterana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, Executive Director of the Technology Modernization Fund. Claire, Raylene, always a great pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having us, Jason. Thank you. So, Claire, I'm going to start with you because we're celebrating, and I'll use that in the big quotes, uh, the five-year anniversary of the Technology Modernization Fund. I remember it quite well when when the Modernizing Government Technology Act got passed and, and signed into law back in March 2018. Let's start at the beginning. I can't believe it's been five years, but but where are we today? Let's talk about some of the statistics, the funding, the opportunities, the projects. Uh, give me the latest of, of, of what long, strange trip this five years has been. TMF celebrating a five-year anniversary is really a huge milestone for us. We've been investing in IT modernization projects that have real human impacts on the ways that the federal government provides services to the American people. We work hard to make sure that we're increasing public trust and making it easier for the American people to get the services they need. And I know Raylene has some really wonderful statistics to share with you. Yeah, thank you, Claire. So today, we've really come a long way in in the last several years. Uh, We managed nearly $700 million in active investment for 38 investments across 22 federal agencies. Um, And 27 of those investments were made with the historic American Rescue Plan funding that was received just a few years ago. And in total, to date, the TMF has received and reviewed more than 220 different proposals, which total over $3.5 billion in total funding um, in demand for the fund. So Pretty impressive stats and, and really incredible progress, especially in the last few years. I was going to actually ask about that because that, that's been one of the big changes. I know, Claire, before, you know, this goes probably before you and maybe even before Raylene uh, had gotten to your current positions. But there was a lot of hesitation from agencies whether or not they wanted to apply for TMF. Uh, do you get a sense that that as over the last few years, agencies not only are more comfortable with applying for funding and asking for potential loans, but they're, they're, they're better at what makes a good investment and why. Talk about that growth. It has been really clear that there's demand, right? There, there's absolutely no question based on the numbers Raylene shared that IT modernization, cybersecurity, customer experience, and legacy IT issues challenge every single federal agency. So TMF under the American Rescue Plan and with our historic $1 billion investment has really changed how agencies think about TMF. And when we were able to change our repayment model from 100% repayment to some flexibility for agencies that had very specific needs, it really had agencies leaning forward and leaning into TMF where they might not have previously. And Raylene, from the uh, on the ground perspective, what are you seeing maybe differently as agencies are submitting their proposals? I know you all work very closely with them. How have those proposals also evolved over the last you know couple of years? I think something you mentioned around working just really closely with the agencies. I think that's also been a big change in the last few years. We've meaningfully grown the the TMF program. We've um, you know expanded the board and added new members, and obviously added subject matter experts to the team. So that's given us just an increased ability to engage quite early and often with agencies who are interested in the TMF. One concrete example is previously agencies would, you know, submit a proposal and it would go to the board and they'd have to go through this um, kind of full process right away. But uh, over the last year, we introduced a new process that enables agencies to get started in a very lightweight 
quick way where sometimes they can take only 15 minutes and submit some basic information and get hands-on advice and support from the PMO, um, which enables them to kind of really engage more deeply on the work and, and have a great, you know, kind of discussions and conversation with the board. And roughly how big is the board today or the program management office, I should say, and what kind of subject matter experts have you brought in over the last you know, year or so? We know cyber, customer experience and the like, but maybe if you could go to the next level down of where they're focused on or how they're helping agencies get better with their proposals. I'll let Claire actually highlight some of the great skill sets from the board, but on the team, on the program management office's side, you know, you mentioned CX, you mentioned cybersecurity. I would just say we provide a kind of general technical support, helping agencies take a more agile approach to their uh, modernization plans. Um, And that's been a really big focus is just looking at how to break down the projects, ensure that incremental impact is achieved um, as they embark on their projects. And I guess I would just add on the board side, you know, we really have a very well-rounded board that are used to managing the complexities in the federal environment from, you know, procurement, the the challenges uh, we often have with um, making sure that we have the contracting vehicles in place, the staff able to work on the program, the leadership support. So making sure that we're not as um, IT executives building something and hoping everyone will come, making sure that these projects are thinking dynamically about the change management, not digitizing bureaucracy, really re-interrogating their entire business process in an agile way with human-centered support to make sure that we are shipping the most important and complete projects on time with uh, milestones that are previously identified and we manage our funding to those milestones. So I think the board uh, has really focused on adding those types of evaluations to our um, process. And at the same time, Claire, can you maybe also talk a little bit about how those the conversations on the board has changed over the last couple of years? I mean, you before you came to be any experience with the TMF board, if you were just more kind of narrowly focused on OPM, or if you had some of that government-wide, can you can you get a sense of how the board is looking at these projects differently, how they are, where maybe something two, three, four years ago would not have made it to the, risen to the top, but today has? Any, any examples come to mind? Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, our investments are really, we we measure success. And I think that having technologists and all of these experts um, interrogating a project up front does a lot. It really benefits an agency's team to have outside people who might not be as familiar with the subject matter expertise of a project really being able to ask and focus on the features and benefits, right? What are the, the metrics that are going to be um, focused on? like cost savings and avoidance that, you know, time saved by either the end customer, the public, or federal employees, um, if they're the customer set. Process improvements, like reinterrogating all of the activities that go into a program before just lifting and shifting something, we're really reinterrogating business processes, looking at making sure our data is protective, the systems are consolidated, that there's sunset plans for the older IT that is no longer going to be used, and then making sure that we're really measuring user impact and customer satisfaction are really key parts 
And with some of the payment flexibility, I think we are really seeing teams leaning into building an MVP, validating their technical requirements, making sure that they're on the right path internally before they go ahead and try and stand up and build an entire system. They're doing all of the really rigorous work up front. And that actually, you know, we're really excited because we can see how that is driving down failure rates. And I think that's one of the key things about the technology modernization fund that, yes, we all get excited when we see Project X gets this much money, $20 million, $15 million, whatever it is. But you actually hand out that money in tranches and you have some gates that they have to kind of step through. And we're not talking gates like DOD does with milestone B gates, but we're talking about actually real kind of DevSecOps types of gates. And and you mentioned the MVP. Has that really also helped, if you will, institutionalize this approach to iterative development, agile development across government? Are you seeing that more broadly just outside of just the TMF? I am definitely seeing it with my CIO colleagues. And there is no question, you know, a couple of years ago, there were a couple leading agencies or components that were really in a DevSecOps model, but that was an exception and not a rule. And now that is really part of the expectation that CIOs have of their teams and the programs that they're managing, um, as well as just the expectation of the federal workforce wanting to work in a more modern, collaborative, agile way. And not just agile for using the word agile, but actually having the opportunity to learn about, you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment, you know, the entire DevSecOps methodology. And I think that we're really seeing both requests into the board and then just the review of projects across the federal ecosystem really benefiting from us moving towards those models. Claire, Raylene, on that note, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can continue our conversation. My guests today are Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, the Executive Director of the Technology Modernization Fund. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guests today are Claire Martirana, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, the Executive Director of the Technology Modernization Fund. I want to talk just real quick about the uh, the Biden administration requests about $200 million for fiscal 2024. The budget numbers are, are out, and that's very exciting. How, how did you decide on that $200 million, and, and what are some of those ideas or goals if, if should Congress approve it? We focus on trying to understand where agencies are on their IT modernization journey and make the right investments through annual appropriations process, which is really the critical part of this. But TMF is really supplemental to that annual process and helping put agencies on the right road to building, you know, a durable, secure foundation. And it's really a key, as you know, Jason, to digital modernization and transformation. So I'd say starting with making sure we understand where each agency is on their IT modernization journey, and then really making sure that we are focusing both on how we can be a catalytic change agent in partnership with that annual appropriation process. And and Raylene, you might have some additional thoughts on this. I totally agree with uh, kind of that idea of really thinking about how we complement the annual appropriations process. Um, But also, I would say with the TMF, we're really aiming to try to strike that balance between the agency's demand for funding, which typically just outpaces available resources, I would say, in any year. Um, But what's balancing that with what's achievable and realistic 
in a constrained kind of overall budget environment. Um, I'd say if you look back at all the TMF budget requests over the past five years, uh, the 2024 request is quite in line with those and I think reflects the importance of, of these funds. And we're really pleased to receive congressional support for $50 million in this year's omnibus. So we believe that the next year's request is, is quite critical to keep pace with the scale and number of investments that we're making today in the fund. I think with additional funding, we'll be able to meet you know, significant demand and kind of and continue investing in some really complex uh, government-wide IT modernization efforts as well at the same time as we scale operations um, and continue growing. I appreciate that. I think uh, the, the challenge, of course, is the technical debt across government is only growing and a lot of agencies see this as a way to accelerate out of that debt, but there's never going to be enough money no matter how much you get, if you've got $10 billion, it probably still wouldn't be enough money. So you have to look at where the priorities lie and, and how you can kind of give that agencies a little bit of a push. I want to shift gears as we kind of get close to time here. I know that there's been a lot of talk in the federal community about login.gov. There was a what I'll call a very striking IG report that came out from GSA about TTS and, and misleading agencies over the last four years about meeting certain requirements from NIST. From the TMF board's perspectives and OMB's perspective, how concerning is this? Are you relooking at the investment? Uh, maybe, Claire, what can you tell us about this report and how what it means for you from both federal CIO perspective, but also from the TMF board lead? I think this is a really good example of good government. You know, we really appreciate GSA's leadership when they identified these issues with login.gov in early 22. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They immediately reported the issue to the IG. They notified the TMF board and agency partners, and they worked diligently to establish new leadership for the login.gov program. So I think that those, uh, you know, new management controls, establishing clear lines of oversight and accountability are absolutely essential. And we invested in login.gov because we believe that a government-operated shared identity service is important option for the public. And using that same identity across agencies can make things so much easier for the American public especially for those who who struggle um, with access to benefits. So, you know, some of the things that the TMF investment has supported, for example, the login.gov team was able to go from a Monday to Friday, nine to five call center to a 24-7 call center to be able to support customers on their journey. They also partnered with U.S. Postal Service to provide an in-person proofing option that is now rolling out at 18,000 United States post office locations. So these are the kind of investments and doors that login.gov can unlock and uh, provide an improved customer experience. So we're optimistic. We're grateful that GSA did what they did in the appropriate notification to the IG. We're really bullish about the increased leadership um, uh, and uh, talent that they've attracted. And I continue to remain really bullish about the opportunity for login.gov to provide that seamless and secure experience for the American public to make it easier to transit from one program to another. One big concern, and I appreciate the comments, one big concern is obviously the, the trust factor, right? If you told us you did this, but didn't, what else didn't you do? And, and is there a concern on the board's perspective that they told you that they met certain requirements? Do you feel like you have to go back and look and, and relook at their 
proposal, make sure that they have crossed their T's and dotted their I's. Because again, this is less about not meeting 863-3 IL-2 and more about trust. Absolutely, Jason. You know, that, that, that this did dent the trust for login.gov, but it is recoverable. Our expectations are that every single project and program that we run, you know, uh, operates with integrity and accountability and transparency. And I think that the, the GSA leadership team has really proven that, but you, it is a ding and it does cause pause. We as a board are fully interrogating the process that we went through for the investment, making sure that we are going back and looking at you know, the milestones that we were managing to and all of our delivery to make sure that we're doing our job because we are the stewards of the taxpayer dollar, as well as the agencies that get TMF funding. So we take this all very seriously and are having really rigorous conversations, both amongst the board itself with our TMF PMO colleagues and with our logging colleagues because this is something that we're going to have to build back from as a shared service provider. But I have all the confidence in the world that we will be able to recover from this and that our investment um, has been meaningful for the American people. Claire, I appreciate you talking about login. I know it's a very sensitive situation and, and, and I know it causes a lot of angst in the community. At, in the same vein, I'm going to go maybe one step further. And of course, now you're probably going to get a lot of folks in Congress questioning, okay, how do we make sure we can trust TMF? Can you talk a little bit about your conversations or the conversations you hope to have with members of Congress? Because they have always, whether the login.gov issue came up now or, or it's always been a, a challenge to kind of get them to see the value uh, and to continue to appropriate money. What kind of conversations are you having with Congress to ensure they continue to understand the value and, and what are you doing either differently or, or new in 2023 and beyond? As you know, you know, the last two years receiving this historic investment from the American Rescue Plan of a billion dollars really changed the way that we operate TMF. You know, the investment rate has increased tenfold. The fund is constantly looking for new projects to invest in. But it's really important to remember, and we remember as board members, that our customers are the constituents of members of Congress. And we are constantly in communication with every investment that we make. I know that Raylene can add a little bit more color to this, but we work really closely with our congressional colleagues to make sure that we are showing the features, the benefits, you know, learning from uh, lessons of certain investments and scaling that learning across our whole portfolio. But I think, Raylene, maybe you can touch on how we interact with Congress on a frequent basis. I would say something that's actually always been true for the TMF is we provide detailed and regular spend plans to our congressional committees. Uh, We really try to outline proactively what's happening in each investment round, what what actually happens when different investments either wrap up or kind of get updates or sort of show progress along the way. Um, So I think that's a pretty unique aspect of the program. And at this point, um, almost on a monthly or every other monthly basis, we've been able to kind of give these refreshed um, updates in written form, but also have done regular briefings um, with our committees as well. So definitely here to engage and help answer questions and help shine a light on uh, the great impact of these um, investments that we're making. All right, Claire, Raylene, I really appreciate it. There's a lot more to talk about, but unfortunately we're out of time. So let me thank my guests. 
Claire Martirana is the Federal Chief Information Officer. Claire, always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Jason. And Raylene Young is the Executive Director of the Technology Modernization Fund. Raylene, always a pleasure as well. Thank you. Thank you. We have to take a break. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this segment of the show, we switch gears. I caught up with Colonel Jennifer Krolikowski, the Chief Information Officer of the Space Systems Command, after she spoke at the recent FCA Tech Summit. Colonel Krolikowski, first of all, thanks for taking the time. I just want to start by asking, you mentioned a new project called Enigma. Can you just tell me a little bit what that is, how it works? Because it seems like a really innovative way to address some big challenges around contracting, specifically getting out of the manual and getting more digital. Mm-hmm. One of our main pain points that we were seeing within Space Systems Command is how can we work and collaborate with industry partners specifically, with other people in general, but primarily focusing on on how we can work with industry. And so part of our, our mantra to that is being able to connect and work with anyone, anytime, anywhere we wanted to. So the concept of an enigma then, too, is good to go from device through transport into a cloud to be able to, to work together, whether that's in digital engineering or DevSecOps, you know, building code, or just collaborating on a document in general. Um, oftentimes, you know, the contractors can't get into our networks. We can't get into theirs. We're, we sneaker net things, or it takes forever ever to, to transport files and stuff. So we wanted to be able to have an environment that we understood was secure. We knew who was going to be in it. We could actually work and do things and, and be more productive um, in that respect. And one of the challenges that we always see um, also in the current way of doing business is that a lot of those things are bifurcated. Um, there's a different organization that does each element of those, whether it's from like device management to transport and who, who and where the transport, if it's space transport or long haul, um, and then all the cloud management and stuff too. So we wanted to smooth that out so we understood the full spectrum of how the ones and zeros are going around or being managed or secured, and then providing a good user experience for for the folks and stuff too. So kind of a couple of different problems associated with it, um, but that's pretty much the gist of what we're trying to go after with Enigma. This is not just for contract writing. This is for anything that anyone in the Space Command needs to do. It sounds like, is it a separate cloud or is it a unclassified cloud? Like, how do you characterize this or is it a platform? How do you kind of talk about what this is? Because, again, it sounds like it's just the cloud, which it can be many things to many people. No, for sure. And so we, we go into, like, when I have a user who wants to be able to use the digital backbone, that is Enigma, um, going after what their use case, what is it that they're trying to, to go after or what they're trying to do? So whether it is like, you know, hey, they want to do a solicitation and so they want it to be able to do, you know, a digital evaluations or, or something like that, we, we can spin up a cloud for them for that. If they are on contract at that point and they're starting to do the design work, now you can do digital engineering in a cloud where you spin that up for them for that. And the beauty of it is, is that we can then control the compute and storage for it instead of having a generic, like, I need cloud. We can tailor it to what their specific use cases are and, and get to what, you know, compute and storage. We can be better, more efficient managing it in the way that they, um, you know, how many bytes do they need? And uh, being able to kind of manage how we spend on cloud um, that much more. So the other part of it, too, again, goes into the security aspects of it. You know, if the government is providing that cloud environment for contractors or whomever we're working with um, to do that, 
we know what the security posture of it is. We know who's in it. We can we can monitor and maintain that. Um, we know it, who might be attacking it, understanding that sort of thing, um, which we don't always have that insights into the way acquisitions are currently done, especially when you have third, fourth, fifth, ninth tier subs that are accessing a prime contractor's cloud. We don't always understand like how well that's being secured and data can be exfilled. So we're, we're trying to, to pull that back a little bit as well. It almost sounds like it's a sort of a cloud broker setup. What kind of cloud do you need? We have that. Or you need, you know, is it, and I imagine this is all unclassified as well. So is, is it is a cloud broker the right terminology or, or how would you terminology? Because I think, again, people are going to listen to this and go, oh, so you have a DevSecOps platform cloud and, and fill in the blank. No, so it's, it's much more than just being a cloud or like, you know, providing a cloud instance. Um, it goes into the device and transport as well, like the access to that cloud. We have that challenge of getting to the cloud or and everybody else getting to the same cloud that we want to with either with that transport or whatnot. So, and when I talk about, um, you know, at the device level, the device may be on, on a base, or it may be on, on location, but it, it could also be remote. And so we're looking at how we can have secure tablets or we can have secure devices that also has that same connectivity um, to the cloud as well. So that's why when I say it's an integrated digital backbone, it's, it goes from device through transport to that cloud access. But the cloud just happens to where we do all of the work. But I need to get access to it. I need the devices to be able to perform to be able to do that too. So that's where we're kind of going. As far as classification levels, Enigma is initially going after IL-5 because um, that's where most of my space systems, um, are be us being national security systems, automatically puts us in a need for IL-5. But we also go going after IL-6. Actually, IL-6 is our first use case to go after secret for some of our first adopters for Enigma and with an IL-5 to be um, there closely behind. So we're trying to go after those first two use cases, but also trying to design the architecture to scale up to the SAP level even um, because we have a lot of systems that, that need to work in there. And again, thinking about classification levels as part of the design and architecture so that it, it, it's that integrated picture so I can take data up and down classification um, is also a little bit unique to, to Enigma so that we aren't bifurcating by classification level either. So it's, kind of, again, that full integrated picture is what we're trying to go after. You kind of answered my next question, so I'll maybe ask a little more specific. Where are we at today with Enigma? Is it still in that design phase? Are you, you talked about use cases. Are you getting close to IOC or, or where are we today? So we're already on contract. We actually awarded the contract back on uh, the 23rd of January. We actually did a, a pretty quick solicitation. So we're all about speed in doing this, but deliberate speed too. <laughs> so for the prototype phase, we have about a year for it to go through. And one of the first deliverables, we have like six, nine, and 12 months um, for certain se um, sets of deliverables. So we should start seeing the first rollout of things um, in the June-ish timeframe. The one thing that's great about Enigma too is I'm trying to leverage commercial as much as absolutely possible. So it's contractor-owned, contractor-operated leverage everything industry does. We don't need to be inventing things. You guys already know how to do this sort of stuff. So that's going to help lend us to a lot of the speed that we're looking for to being able to, to deploy this kind of system. And then we'll start onboarding folks, understanding how their um, user experience is, whether they um, like the way that the service levels are and things like that. And so that when we go into production, we can help influence what that looks like when we go into the longer term and scaling out of, of the project. It sounds to me like this was a OTA type of deal. You mentioned three, six, nine months prototypes. So you all did it through an OTA. And this is the idea of 
can we even do this? Does it work for us? Mm-hmm. That's this, what this first year seems to be about. Yeah, so it, it was um, initially awarded under the SPEC OT contract. Um, so we did do it under the OTA. And again, a lot of it was to inform us on, were we asking for the requirements right? Has life changed so we can adopt the requirements a little bit going into production? And then understanding you know, what the business model needs to look like, what costs need to look like, how does the scaling need to look like? You know, digital engineering is going to be the first use case of cloud. But then you know, what does that look like from a compute and storage? So there's a lot of information that we can glean from the prototype that can help influence the production going forward. Currently, if you you mentioned a lot of this is done either manually or done with separate clouds. Was there any discussion initially about saying, well, could we beg, borrow, and steal from the Air Force and what they already have set up or what the Army has set up or, or whomever else across DOD? Did, was there a reason why you all felt like we should do our own thing? One of the, the big reasons was that connectivity to industry, that wasn't a use case the Air Force was going after in the immediate near term. And considering some of the challenges that we have within the space domain, um, we needed to have something in place like right now. And the fact that we are smaller and are able to, you know, we only have 13,000 or so people versus the 700,000 that the Air Force has, we're able to, to try things out and to be able to get a lot of information and data back to see how it can service us. And feed that back to the Air Force. So I am working with um, the Air Force CIO in this as well. They're, they're tracking the project, working with the CTIO at the Space Force side to see, you know, they're tracking it too, how we can fold it into maybe a broader uh, Space Force initiative. But right now, for the stuff that we need to do acquisition to be able to get space assets on orbit before uh, we have any challenges from some of our um, near peers, we needed to be able to move out much quicker than some of the things that the Air Force does. Now, that to say... I'm leveraging as much as I possibly can from the Air Force as well. And so we are still part of what Enigma does, too, is like, yes, it's a backbone for us on the – for um, some of the work that we have on the space side. But a lot of the services will still pull from the AFNET. Um, and so we still will tunnel back into the mothership, if you will, to be able to get those because we don't need to manage those. We're already being taken care of by the Air side. You mentioned digital engineering as one use case. How many use cases do you expect to, to push through Enigma in this first you know, six months, nine months, or starting in June? And can you mention, if more than one, can you mention others? Yeah, so, so really for the, for the prototype year, we're really focused on the digital engineering because that's kind of one of the bigger pain points that we have, especially as some of our newer acquisitions are trying to um, hit their milestones to be able to, to be delivering capability by... Let me just jump in. I'm sorry to interrupt. Digital engineering, how would you describe that? Because I think of digital engineering as this idea of how am I going to make, if you will, decisions around what engineering, uh, but do it all online or all through a platform versus you know paper and pen or whatever. Maybe yeah. if you could define digital engineering as best as you can. Yeah, so it does mean a little different to different people about what they're, what they're trying to do. And it's also a little bit about the phase that they're kind of in. So there's there's difference about you know architectural design. Um, you can iterate a lot faster if you're doing it you know, digitally than you can necessarily if you're trying to do pen and paper. If you're trying to you know, transport, you know, review documents, instead of getting a pile of, of documents on your doorstep um, that's all printed out, if you just have it all online where you can actually access it any time that you want to in a, in, and in a collaborative manner, you know, that's, that's another way you can digitally engineer. So it, it depends on kind of some of the, the things that you know, I have. Um, some users, they want to be able to do all of the design reviews digitally. Um, it helps you to do things more remotely or more real time versus waiting for 
you know, here's the PDRs, the CDR, we're waiting on this one date. Well, no, I can see actively what's going on throughout the whole thing. So there's, there's a benefit to that in kind of automating the way engineering is being done and, and digital can, having things digitized like that can help those sorts of things. So that's the first, that's really the main use case we're going after. I've got some folks who want to be able to do design reviews, who want to be able to just even understand if they change a requirement or if they tweak something, how does that ripple through the rest of the, of the design? That's kind of the things that they can get very quickly out of using digital engineering. That's really what the prototype's focused on first, but we also have like a stretch goal for like DesecOps so that people can start building code in there and we can have a collaborative coding environment uh, as well because a lot of times we don't get visibility into code until, you know, after it's been being worked for a period of time. So we're trying to get things into more an agile mindset versus some of the waterfall builds that we have today. We can do that if we are cloud-based and we both have access to the same kinds of environment. And then honestly, just like documents in general, you know, um, if you have a Word document, it'd be great to be able to collaborate on that sometimes and or have the same environment where you can access it or it's stored in the same place. Um, so that's kind of you know, part of what's going to be on the production side as well. And honestly, it's like the, the sky's kind of the limit. That's one of the things you love about about cloud, what things you can, a lot of different things you could do in there. So, but that's the purpose of Enigma too, is to be able to be adaptable as well, to be able to accommodate whatever use cases kind of come up from, from my user group. We have to take a break. You just heard from Colonel Jennifer Krolikowski, the Chief Information Officer of the Space Systems Command, after she spoke at the recent FCA Tech Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For this final segment of the show, we hear from Yemi Yoshinawe, the CIO of the Transportation Security Administration. He spoke at the recent ACT-IAC Emerging Technology Summit. What's really important and what we're going to level set on is what is transformation? Because I can, I can talk about digital transformation, but let's figure out what transformation is first. Starting with what transformation is, we talked about 9-11. 9-11 is our why. 9-11 is the reason that we got together. But the response to that, and it only took a year and a couple of months November 2002 was when DHS was created. We became operational in 23, but it only took a couple months for us to organize around that. And the reason we created the department, because we wanted consistent, long-lasting change, which is real transformation. You had a whole bunch of assets that already existed, which is Border Patrol. You had immigration. You had um, customs enforcement, and brought it together in one place, and then you create a TSA from FAA, DOT, and a bunch of places. And we did that so we can focus, a little bit of Conway's Law, right? So we can focus on an adversary and make sure that what happened never happened again. And it's important because it was intentional, intentional, insightful, and it was about people coming together. Back then, because I get all the stories now I'm at TSA, back then you took a bunch of folks, you got in the room, you saw the problem, and it got done. There was no acquisition, there was no contracts, there was no CIO, <laughs> there was nothing. We just got it done because you needed that, and you needed to make a change. You needed to, I mean, I didn't fly that much back then, but there are people that talk about there was no sterile environment. You walked into a plane. Go figure, right? We had a different mindset, and we had to change, right? Fast forward into uh, kind of when I got involved with DHS, kind of one of my first jobs out of college. I remember working for immigration because that's where I started as a contract. I was a developer. And they said, you know, we're going to have you go out in the field and do these things called file audits because we have, we still have um, these immigration files that are, that are A files. And you would go out to a site 
and you would audit the files so that we can track them electronically. But lo and behold, I would get to these sites. It would be like Miami, New York, Philly, and there would be a line going around the building. And I'm not talking about a 7-Eleven line. I'm talking about lines that are 70, 100 deep. They're so long that there are people that you would hire to stand in line for you. And what those people would do is they would stand in line, and so folks can take their kids to school, they can go to work, and you paid them so you can come back in line and take your spot. Uh, and so that's pretty significant. Uh, you'd also have people taking passport pictures and get advice, all because that line was that long. And it would take hours to get in that building so you can get a benefit or you can you know, get one of the biggest prizes of being a part of this country. And I remember going in, and my parents are immigrants, so it's special to me. I remember going and saying, man, that's crazy that people have to stand in line like that. Never seen a line like that. And so lo and behold, it became our mission, the other why, the catalyst, to make sure we can get immigration benefits faster, easier. And so we worked on things. Here's where it's systemic. We worked on things like Agile. And we use that word all over the place. I mean, we, we, we send solicitations out, and you guys say I do Agile really well. But what was it really? It was so that we could iterate. It's so that we could go and find innovation and do it over again. Because if you know anything about innovation, it doesn't happen right the first time, does it? No. We make mistakes. We fail forward. And that's a cliche, but, you know, I remember when I was a developer, we would develop something, push it out, do an emergency release, push it out, bring it back, and all of a sudden, it wasn't what the customer wanted a year later. I got a customer over here, Soraya, she's smiling at me because she remembers that. It wasn't what we wanted a year later, and we had to do it over again because we didn't have the system to be able to fail forward and be agile enough to change. So, but in order to do Agile, you needed leaders to come in and say, well, I'm not going to do it that way anymore. I'm not going to use the systems engineering lifecycle. I'm going to change it. I'm going I'm to get people together, and we're going to talk amongst each other, and we're going to make a change. See, we, we wanted to make real change. So the thing you had to do and you had to remember, it was about people and about companies and about government being on the same playing field. Because a lot of times we get in an agile, what we call a scrum, and a developer who's a contractor would say to the government, that's wrong. Now, way back in the day, the government would say, well, you can't say that to me. I'm your boss. We had to change our mindset so that there was a level playing field, so that we could have a conversation. And those conversations, if you know the Agile Manifesto, got us to a place where we can get something done. So very important, systematic change. The next thing it was was automation. And we talk about automation with the tools, but what automation did was made sure that part of the time it took us to do things over a year was setting up our system. It took us like a month to set up a system to, do, to deploy code. And we can't do that anymore. We had to do it in like days or hours. So being able to do that actually allowed us to ideate faster. Ideas to solutions were better and faster, easier. And then we can get the customer in front of us so they can see it and make change. So the components of transformation, we had to be committed to it. Uh, so lo and behold, we did some things like my USCIS, which not only was it fast and not only was it using infrastructure that was easy to build, it put it in the customer's hands. So the customer made the choice. The customer chose the journey. The customer was able to say, I actually want to go get a green card today, or I want to get a 765 today so I can work. And I do that, and you respond to me. 
So it had to be intentional. We had to do things like do um, focus groups. It was actually in DHS, one of the first areas where we actually did focus groups. And I surprised that she's always going to smile at me because she was there. We did focus groups. And the first thing they said is, why the heck are you going out to the field to ask people what they want? And you're laughing now because that seems silly. But back then it was like, you need to ask somebody what the requirements are. We're going to write it down, and that's what they want. But we said, no, we want the customer, not the federal customer, the people out there that are going to get the benefit to tell us what they want. And we get their feedback, and, oh, by the way, we're going to do a little pilot to see if they really like it. And they thought we were crazy. This is nuts. Why would you ever do that? We did it, and, of course, it worked. Not only did it work, it kept happening over and over, and we had this thing called human-centered design that everybody's doing right now and became the advent of that because that was very important to be able to start that. But everybody said no. If I had Luke McCormick sitting here, he'd laugh too because everybody said no. And until we found someone somewhere at DHS to say, yes, we can do it. So it's important from the eyes of a leader and the voice of a leader to be able to go against the grain and make change, right? So the other thing you'll understand is that when we did those things, we had to be able to do it over and over again. We had to take the digital asset and store it somewhere and to say, hey, this digital asset is ready for everyone else to use again. Because lo and behold, things like my USCIS was helpful when we had to get folks from Afghanistan over here. We just reused stuff. So now it took weeks to get things out instead of months and years. Lo and behold, when, when the efforts happened in Ukraine and we need to get people over here to get work permits, we use the same thing. It took one week then. And I was, I was leaving USA. I was coming to TSA. It was one of my last things I did. I, the problem happened on a Monday. We deployed on a Friday. I walked out on a Friday, and I was like, man, that was great because I remember when that line was long. I remember when it took long to build something, and it happened in a week now. And, and from the eyes of someone in government, from the heart of someone in government, what's most important is that we save people, not technology. That's how we think. So when you're engaging us, that's that passion that you're dealing with. Uh, we have other things. I don't know if many folks know. We have a chief innovation officer, and it's not me. It's the other CIO. A chief innovation officer that goes out to the actual airports and goes and works with the folks in the airports that work there and identifies where we can be innovative. And the reason that's important and it's not the CIO is because we have bomb-sniffing dogs, and there's innovation there, innovation in how they see folks walk through the lines, innovation how we move the lines around. And... What's good about that is if they work really well, then maybe we won't need some of the machines we have. And, and it's looking at them in parity and how real innovation is. Again, it's transformation. I don't know if you've seen some airports, there are, there are lines where the bomb sniffing dogs, are, the, the lines are totally different. There's a straight line in, and you see where the dog comes in, and it moves faster. You can also use those in a train station, right, because there are threats in the train station now that we that we see that we need to guard from. Uh, we also have a partnership with um, the New York Metropolitan Police Department where we train them how to use mobile technology to identify bombs using uh, CT. So, you know, like the bag scanning system, imagine that being mobile. And then, you know, the guy's way in the back behind the pillar and he's watching to make sure there's nothing in the bag and you're moving at, at walking speed. So these are things we do because we want to change the landscape and we want to protect where we are. Um, that's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Yemi Oshinawe, the CIO of the Transportation Security Administration. He spoke at the recent ACT-IAC Emerging Technology Summit. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 